Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We are here to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we are willing to spoon-feed it to you through your earbuds. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are, of course, at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care, so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week's articles, which this week were brought to you by Megan Hilbert, Millie Cosse, Jason Lesnick, Aaron Lacey, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. So, let's get into the first article titled Test Characteristics of Ultrasound for the Diagnosis of Peritonsillar Abscess, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the journal Academic Emergency Medicine. Sore throat, a little bit of a cough recently, maybe some voice changes, eh, you know, what, what we might call a hot potato voice. In cases like these, there's a few things to watch out for, and that list would include a peritonsillar abscess. Something you don't want to miss since it could expand outwards causing airway obstruction or it could expand inwards and cause carotid sheath erosion. Bad. Bad news in either case. Now, I don't know about you, but looking into the throat of a child doesn't always feel like the easiest or most objective exam that I do in the emergency department. And data actually backs me up on that one also. Physical exam is only 75% sensitive and 50% specific for a peritonsillar abscess. You could, of course, get a CT, that would do a good job, but it takes time, it's more costly, and you don't really want to irradiate the neck of, you know, as as few children as possible should get irradiation. This article was a systematic review to just get to the bottom of whether or not an ultrasound is really a properly good test for this, for diagnosing a peritonsillar abscess. They also compared two techniques, whether it was doing it intraoral, the ultrasound, or transcervical. What they found was 17 studies, a total of 812 patients. The scans were better performed by radiology, as is often the case with stuff like this. And I think for something like this, radiology is probably going to have a bit better of a machine, and they're going to spend more time doing a definitive scan. Radiology was 89% sensitive, and POCUS was just 74% sensitive. Now, both are obviously doing better than the physical exam, though, so you still have to keep that in mind. Now, as for which approach you might want to take, there was no significant difference between the two, either intraoral or transcervical, but intraoral was numerically a little bit more sensitive, but less specific. Probably much easier to get a transcervical scan on a child, though. It would require much less cooperation. Now, there are some major things to consider from this study, though. One of them was that the included trials, well, none of them were low risk of bias. None at all. Now, it's hard to not have bias in studies like these, where these children are very self-selecting. I mean, just think about the intraoral ultrasound group in particular. Any child, it would be hard to do that on. But a child with possible trismus? Oh, I mean, forget it. All this makes transcervicals seem like a pretty good choice, honestly. Especially since, I'm not sure about your department, but I don't think we have the appropriate intraoral ultrasound probes. So maybe you do and you can give it a shot, though, if your child is amenable. So it may be worth the time to actually learn the technique and give it a quick go on a child in which you suspect a peritonsillar abscess. Then if that fails, you can always move on to a CT if you're really quite concerned. 
Don't forget, though, that this used to be diagnosed just by physical exam and then putting a needle in it. And that is always still an option. Though earlier abscesses aren't necessarily going to be amenable to drainage, and so you might not be sure still. And you always have to be very, very careful not to puncture the carotid artery. In a spoonful, ultrasound for the diagnosis of a peritonsillar abscess is possible, and transcervical seems to be equally viable as intraoral from the data that we have here. And then we skip to the third article, titled The Effects of Cuff Size on the Accuracy of Blood Pressure Readings, the CUF-SZ Randomized Crossover Trial out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. Try to tally in your mind how many times that you've seen an inappropriate blood pressure cuff size used. And it's probably just going to be cases in which it was grossly inappropriate and just you could see with your eyes how incorrect it is from across the room. Like putting a normal medium adult size cuff on a hundred year old lady who was probably no more than five feet tall at her prime. She should probably get a smaller cuff. Prior studies of automated oscillometric BP measurements have been limited to observational studies and these are typically done in the ICU or home setting. It seems like it wouldn't be too hard to do an RCT on something like this, though, and thankfully these authors did just that for us. These patients were community-dwelling adults, I mean age of 54 years old, and typically the right arm was used for just about all measurements. Now, to simulate entering into a clinical environment, patients were asked to walk around for two minutes, and then they sat and rested for five minutes before measuring their blood pressure, all with normal positioning and support required for any proper blood pressure measuring. Patients had their blood pressure taken four times. Each time was an average of three sequential readings. The first three times the blood pressure was taken, it was taken with an appropriately sized cuff, a too small cuff, and a too large cuff in a random order. The fourth measurement was always redone with an appropriately sized cuff. 51% of the patients from this cohort actually had hypertension at a baseline, and 20% had diabetes. Now, when it would have been appropriate to use a small-sized cuff, and instead a cuff that was one size bigger was used, then this significantly estimated the systolic blood pressure to be lower by 3.6 millimeters of mercury. It's not much. When a large cuff was appropriate, but a regular-sized cuff was used, that is to say a cuff that was one size too small, then the systolic blood pressure was overestimated by about 5 millimeters of mercury on average. When an extra large cuff was appropriate, but a standard cuff was used that is two sizes too small, then the blood pressure was overestimated by about 20 millimeters of mercury, which is a big difference. If the extra large cuff requiring people used a cuff that was just one size too small, then it's still overestimated by 10 millimeters of mercury. Results from the diastolic pressures were similar for the study. Now, this is... There's a few things to consider here. First of all, is that this is actually scary stuff. If you measured a systolic blood pressure of 100, but it was actually 80, that would probably almost certainly change your management of that patient. Second thing to bring up is that the authors never report the mean arterial pressures. Now, why is this important? If you think about how an automated oscillometric blood pressure cuff works, then you'll remember that the only thing that the cuff actually measures is the mean arterial pressure. And then all of these cuffs use a proprietary formula to calculate the systolic blood pressure and the diastolic blood pressure. Those measurements are never actually made by the blood pressure cuff itself, which means that you can't necessarily apply this data very well to other types of cuffs. In this study, they used a Welsh Allen cuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you would have gotten the same results from a different company. 
And again, I'd like to stress this is important because the calibrations that these were done on the the formulas that were made to calculate the systolic and diastolic blood pressures were probably done in ideal situations with an appropriately sized cuff. So you're probably getting even worse estimations of these numbers than you would in other circumstances. Overall, this is just a reminder that in general, with automated cuffs, if you're going to trust a number, you should trust the mean arterial pressure because that is the only objective number that was actually measured by the cuff. In a spoonful, yes, indeed, using poorly sized blood pressure cuffs can certainly change the blood pressure readings. The worst is overestimation of the blood pressure in patients who have very large arms, but you're using cuffs that are too small. Okay, that's it. That's all. That's our podcast for this week. Let's do our wrap up. From the first article suspecting a peritonsillar abscess, well, think about getting an ultrasound as your first line test. From the third article, it's worth taking an extra minute to actually find a blood pressure cuff that fits your patient. It can significantly alter the readings if the cuff is poorly sized. Now, again, if you were hearing this right now, then you are not currently a part of the members feed, and so you're not getting the full Journal Feed podcast. You actually missed three articles from this past week. We had an article about head imaging in patients with infective endocarditis. Should it be standard? Then we looked at linear models. Do they even make sense for endotracheal tube insertion depths in children, or can we do better? And then finally, medical training and fertility. It's an important issue to talk about. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space for repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.